It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Hello and welcome to the projection booth in our silent cinema. Now, maintain a polite level of quiet, but never truly silent, of course, we'll be talking, because though you get your talkies and your silence, of course, the silence never were truly silent. But more on that later. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the inaugural, the premiere, the preview screening in our little chapel of the motion picture um, with myself, Stephen, and my good friend, David. Hello, David. How are you? Hi, Stephen. I'm doing terrific today. Thanks so much for joining me on this first step of a very interesting adventure exploring a kind of under-discussed area of of, uh, film, I feel. So if we're going to see this ongoing um, series as a bit of like a... let's, Let's use the grammar of the film festival. So we're going to start with the... The curatorial notes. You got your little booklet. You got your little your little program. This is the program for the festival that will follow. As we'll get to our films as we go. So the main aim of this podcast, put very very briefly, is we are going to explore, critique, deconstruct, and historically contextualise um, films from the silent era. And we'll question that term later from the silent era that were lost and then were recovered, found, rediscovered resurrected, revivified, whatever term it is you want to use. And I'll be honest, at different points, different terms are more accurate than other terms. Some stumbled upon, some through painstaking recreation or restoration to become what they could have been, or close to what they were, though never truly reawakened. But before we get to these ashes that will become the classics, let's talk about silent film in general, silent cinema. So, David, time to get your scholarly glasses on, because we trade in stereotypes here. Yes, I see them there uh, for the listener at home. And could you please give us a the briefest of overviews about what we'll start by calling the silent era? Sure. Well, the silent era is really the beginning of film as we know it. You know, that's how movies were. They started out uh, the uh, coming together of sound with, uh, you know, pictorial depictions um, was, was a little far off. You, you know, you got to have one step before the other. But uh, as with all histories, the beginning of silent, helm, uh, silent film is never really as evident as the fixed point of foundation. You know, we can start with a very easy question, supposedly easy, uh, like uh, who invented the motion picture camera? You know, and when, <laughs> when we talk about history of, of the film, you know, there's a couple of key names that pop up. You know, I'm sure you know about Thomas Edison. You know about the Lumiere yes. brothers and stuff. But, uh, you know, there's other people, you know, like William Dixon, who was Thomas Edison's assistant, who actually did the majority of the work in terms of inventing the motion picture camera, you know, the, the kinetograph there. Uh, yeah. Uh, but there's also a number of other people that predate them in terms of doing, you know, a lot of foundational work, uh, you know, prior to the uh, Lumiere brothers. There was uh, Etienne Jules Marais, who invented a, a kind of, you know, pictorial gun like in the literal sense that that shot you know uh sequences of photos together and printed them or there's the uh Sklenowski brothers who were a pair of german brothers who a- mm. actually get to claim i've been reading about them yeah they they get to claim the first public screening ahead of the the uh, lumiere brothers of you know a projected film um, yeah, the, the, the famous and apocryphally quoted um, trains pulling into stations we'll get to later, I'm sure. Exactly. Um, so so the, the story of, you know, the beginning of film is as much a, a kind of mythological building up around yeah. key figures as any other, you know, history is. And it's important to recognize that, you know, there's a lot more that kind of goes into it and it has itself been lost in the process a lot of other names figures you know uh Mm. inventors and so when we when we say that film was invented you know cinema was invented in 1895 you know we've picked a very arbitrary 
starting point is, is terms yeah. of who we build it around. I, I guess the difficulty there is because like cinema as 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 a medium and as a slippery thing is not like an extant like product that you can just there can be a binary of there wasn't it and there was it it is like the progression of loads of things and what we see as being cinema is a changing definition of time. i mean there, there are still debates now about like certain films of is this cinema etc so we still even see it as like a a slippery and often like gatekeeping definition and when you're thinking at the beginning of capturing images like there is this kind of like mind shift between i have taken a picture i have now picked the moves and now i'm making something substantively different to that which is the moving image separate from just like images that move so like these these coalescing pieces of technology that all have like different aims and all leads to different cultural sensibilities i know later we'll talk about like early um film in japan and early film practice in japan was so different from early film practice in the united states and then as like globalization and let's be honest as occupation of certain countries happens over time you get that coalescence of a grammar um and obviously you get like huge like sea changes going forward so we're going to talk about german expressionism at a certain point um i'm sure we'll get into some some eisensteiny bits to get to our kind of like you know the real heavy hitters but this coalescing grammar over time so yeah this idea that like cinema is invented is just like a fallacy i think we should resist because you can't just like an ongoing process, an ongoing... You can't invent... No one, like, invented the... Like, I... Again, like, writing's like that. Like, novels happen at a point, but, like, it's when you start to decide what, what a novel could be. And music, etc. These are these are artistic aims. These are not things that just suddenly exist. Well, really, it's just part of the nature, the, the, the kind of fickle nature of talking about things from a fixed point of perspective, mm. regardless, like, of, of any topic in terms of any historical thing. Like, ultimately... In order to found your conversation, in order to find a starting point, you have to select an arbitrary space. Yeah. And that arbitrary space is going to determine a lot. It's going to exclude a lot of important information, you know, a lot of important, you know, figures and other establishing things that got you to that point. Otherwise, every history has to start in the beginning, you know, with the big bang yes. or wh- whichever, you know, point. We got to go all the way back to, you know, human civilization as it, you know, started because uh, history is just a continually tumbling ball of, you know, building on things. Uh, again, in, in, even as we narrow our scope, there's still so much that went into mm. creating, you know, that. So uh, all of that is to say in a, in a really, you know, uh, kind of rambling perspective there that the the notion of firsts and you know in terms of achievements and starting points or accomplishments in cinema uh they're they're all you know contestable ideas you know yeah. what was the first film that was ever you know made in color what was the first feature film ever you know like we can pick examples and there are agreed upon notions but like you know there, there's always there, there's always an asterisk next to it you know something that qualifies it in some way or the other you know oh it was the first feature film a 60 minute length or was it a 40 minute length you know who determines that was the first color film you know the ones that you know in terms of the actual film itself was printed on or was it ones that were colored you know by hand you know earlier it, you know so it your your parameters of definition have to be adjusted at every point. Uh, you can't, you know, the, the the sweeping declarations in terms of uh, the foundational history of something is, is always going to be inaccurate in some way or another. But we do have yeah. to arbitrarily yes. pick one. So what arbitrary bounds are we very much applying here then? So are we saying that we are going from that arbitrary date that you mentioned yeah. earlier? 18, 1895, um, the, like the, the screening of the Lumiere brothers, you know, is is generally considered the foundational point of cinema, and uh, there's there's no real reason for us to veer off of it uh, for our discussions here. Uh, and and the arbitrary endpoint is like 1930-ish. You know, the, yeah. the the thing with the end of the silent era is that uh, sound film was you know kind of became in vogue. You know, became uh, viable in terms of a uh, popular medium in the late 1920s, 1926, 1927, about is when Hollywood started rolling out their feature films, their sound on uh, disc films. And around 1929 is when they started changing over to almost completely to sound uh, features, sound films. Uh, And that then slowly from there rolled out across the rest of the the world. 
I wanted to jump on there because, like, and this links into what 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 is our our next topic of like the the nomenclature around this, the, the idea of silent film, and and the thing to apply is that the term silent film is a retrospective and reactive term, of the sense of it exists to differentiate and arguably to market supposed talkies of these films that weren't seen as being silent because obviously um, you would have live accompaniment. And I mean, I watched Le Vampire recently, and in in that film, there are there are sound effects. Like there are bits where the score is functioning as sound effect. So when someone like beeps their horn, there is a horn sound. So there is even this interplay of like sound and visual. They are seen as being like mapped together, and there are much more experimental and interesting ways, perhaps, of like matching sound and visual. It becomes more performative. Um, but this like idea of labeling it a silent film suddenly is initially as a pejorative of the we have films that talk now. And what I was learning about as I was reading is so much of the imagery that we think of when we think of as silent film comes from early talkies. And a lot of early talkies pastiched silent film and they would pastiche it in a way that would cheapen it. There was a, a great Twitter thread. I'll see if I can put a link to it um, to put in the show notes. But talking about this kind of like the motif of a woman tied to rail tracks oh, yes. and then pulled off and that being an archetypal image of silent film. And this, something was saying, I don't really know of any examples of silent film that include this trope. I know many talkies that have a pastiche that include this trope, but it was part of this very methodical way of how do you make silent film or pre-talking film look flimsy, look less artistic, look frivolous. So this idea of like this like sped up, jaunty, stereotypical, even like some of like the soundtracky choices in like your early talkies was made to pejorativize an art form that as we have more of it available to us now is much more experimental is often way more artistic than early speaking film, early talking film, because you have more availability to you. And what you can do, you're not tied down by certain artifacts that you need to make it a sound film. Um, but there was a huge marketing attempt to try and make it look like it was the past, that it was the the medium of... Well, it was a different medium, yeah. as opposed to being the films of their own right, which I found really fascinating. That's the interesting thing about silent films, aren't they? We treat them uh, often as their own art form, uh, when really they are, uh, or, or if we don't, we often treat them as a kind of re- regressive form, like a, a archetypal form of what movies are today, so to speak. They were like a necessary step in getting to where we are, as opposed to a legitimate and thriving art form in and of themselves before a new tool came along and just completely changed it. Not, uh, you know, not even necessarily mm-hmm. like like radicalized. You know, for, I, I won't even say for the better, per se. You know, because I think that is to imply that uh, th- there was not a greatness to it to begin with i think the thing there is it's it's only not for the better because it was presented as it had to be one or the other of because there were not coexisting histories obviously silent films still continue to be made past that point but seeing as like again the history of film is also about the history of film as a respected art form and we're seeing this with other more like nascent art forms like the conversations around like video games like 10 years ago about like the the artistic credibility um like film is like the key art form in the 20th century like definitely no no question um, 100% it is and yeah and we forget that before that point and at the beginning of that point it was contested as something that's worthwhile it was in something that's frivolous and I was, I was reading this this wonderful book and um, women versus hollywood that talks about how the reason why a lot of early film was like female dominated was because it was seen as it wasn't serious business. And the moment it started to become serious business, that's when the stereotypes around who can conduct serious business took over and the women were pushed out. So this making of film at this point is experimental, um, is still establishing like a grammar and a syntax that will become a, an art form. And then the establishing of talking pictures was seen as like a technology shift as opposed to we can now do this or having something else, mm-hmm. um, and there is some undoing there. I was I was reading about how um, like the stuff that was learnt of how to do things certain ways, like Matrix. A lot of like silent film photographers, cinematographers came from older photography of when you had to like really understand like exposure lengths, and you really had to have this like complex understanding of light and darkness and interplay. And because there was that that lineage of people there something looks a certain way and as we just because of the progression of years fewer people working in earlier and then later talking film have that lineage have that background in making it that way so it loses to an extent that painterly look because it doesn't have to have that look and you're not built in exposing things that way so even that is really interesting about how yes technology changed but also expertise changed which informs how the technology is used i i think one of the things that has always attracted me to 
film, but a silent film in particular is, as you said there, the, the painterly perspective. Because really what, mm. what film is, is it's the combination of two mediums. It is the theater, the stage, and painting. And, and, and I feel like that second one is often the one that people don't recognize as much as the kind of the overt idea of what mm. cinema is. It's very easy to compare it in, to, to theater, especially in terms of blocking of actors and performance, you know, and how we see things and how writing translates because of how films are, uh, you know, uh, particularly talking films are made and how they can compare to similar theatrical works. But it's it's the canvas of the screen that... Um, that, that rectangle through which we view the image that really defines how what's presented to us is composed as opposed to the space of a stage, you know, is in a, in a mm. theater. And that is especially emphasized in silent film because of the inherent visual demand of it. Yeah, so I read um, a book by Paolo Churchy Asahi, um, Silence in My Introduction, which I talked about on another podcast, um, Stacks Office Hours, um, the ninth one, I believe. Um, and I will say that the title is misleading. It is not an introduction to silent cinema. Um, what it is, though, is it is a really fantastic entry level for a complex topic. So it's not introduction to the, the medium. Entry level text on silent film preservation and how to handle it and how to deal with it and all the kind of like technicalities that go there and the thing that he makes the point about throughout is like the existence of film as physical object and that being important and when we can't translate that into the present he specifies that when you should watch a silent film no matter how you watch it you should always do the mental game of transporting yourself back or trying to contextualize it of to think about how it was presented because so much part of the film itself is its presentation and the technology that's facilitating it and the atmosphere that's facilitating it which makes silent film a much more active watch a lot of cinema and makes it um that does give it a strange barrier to entry though you'd think it would be more accessible though actually it's, it's more instantly accessible i think a lot of people are put off silent film, um, but a lot of younger people, when exposed to it, like, it is immediately apparent, but then I guess because we are so used to things being a certain way, it becomes, like, strange going backwards. So that that that, that level is interesting, too. I, I have a question for you, Stephen. You, 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 you yes. kind of sparked an interest in my uh, Have you seen a silent film in a theatre? No, never have. Would love to. I was speaking to my wife about this other day, um, because she has, um, when we were at university together, before I knew her, we are at the same university, and um, she went to a screening of a film, which I can't remember what it was now, um, but of a... I think, it, I think it, was, it seems like it was Nosferatu or something. So yeah, she, she saw this at the High Park Bitch House in Leeds, which was my favourite cinema, maybe my favourite cinema in the country, where they had, you know, live accompaniments on film. I've never, and would love to, I know that you have. Um, yes. Uh. Ugh. I'm I'm very lucky and very fortunate to live in an area that does very regular uh, screenings of silent films with a live accompaniment. They have a uh, uh, preserved pipe organ. It's actually at the, the the theater was built in in 1927 for silent films. Mm. So it's it's a it's a really wonderful experience. And I've got all of the uh, the pamphlets I hand out here hanging on my wall that you can't see from all the ones I've been to. <laughs> but um, it's 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 a super wonderful experience to to be there mm. and and see like that and i would highly recommend anyone who can but yeah i would say more than any other um kind of film uh silent film has a very different uh, uh opportunity for in engagement uh yeah. now because especially because of how it's presented with the music not, not only in terms of what kind of music is attached because i've watched silent films with all kinds of accompaniment. The original scored yes. accompaniment, you know, live accompaniment written for this, uh, some random dude on YouTube, you know, just, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> applying his own. I've had Georgia to... Baroda sometimes, you know. Yeah, I've had to watch films that are actually silent, like just no score to yeah. ever. And it's it's an awful way to do it, I must say. I, I, I do not prefer to watch silent films without sound because, yeah, they never were silent. They were never designed yeah, to be yeah, that yeah. way. And when they are designed... When there is a score, come you know, uh, designed to go along with it, you can see how much the medium is working together mm. with it in in visual and music, and how much more transportive it can be. Oh yeah, a, a good score is so important. And when when reading around it, I was like surprised to find out how like sporadic that would be. Of like how certain films 
music was written for. Certain films, they just like, whatever music they could like get a hand on, they just like played with it. And certain films are just like, improvise on this theme. Like, this is an action f- scene. Like, you're the piano player yep. in the pit. Play something exciting. <laughs> but there's a spontaneity there that's really, that's really interesting. It would also be very different based on, again, like kind of similar to now, what, like what you have access to and what, you know, mm. what area of, of the, the country you're in or whatever, what, what resources are available. You know, the most prestigious films and the most, you know, lavish of cities would have entire orchestras, you know, with with a you yeah. know, written music for the, uh, their their presentations, where somewhere you know out in the, the backwoods or whatever, you know, just a tiny theater in some small town. Maybe there's one guy on on a piano who's you know making it up or reading off of some sheet music the the studio sent. You know, uh, you know they don't have much at all. They just got to go off of anything. But there's always someone there. And it's such a transformative power, though. It's so interesting to me. It reminds me of, like, I think it's, like, Iceland, where they found out relatively recently that, like, the Icelandic translation of Dracula they had was, like, completely, like, like fan fiction Dracula. Right. Because the guy that just translated it back in the day just went wild with it. Um, so, and, like, just just because he knew that no one else had access to it at that point, so he could just, like, rewrite it. So that, there, there is, like, in conversations about, like, authorship or, like, curation of experience, like, so such power is given to the person or people who are just, like guiding and crafting your experience through the silent film by giving it voice giving it sound Mm -hmm. and obviously the the other very different ways other cultures would uh you know present their 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 silent films and how that didn't always translate uh across countries Uh, one of the again one of the other very interesting things about the silent film era is how global it often was and also Mm. how often like kind of singular and contained in certain uh cultures you know yeah so I, I read last year the BFI's The Japanese Cinema Book, which which like goes through quite a lot of periods in Japanese film history and then has like key chapters on. And they talk a lot about um, Japanese silent film because it is so distinct. Um, so Japanese silent film before what was called the pure film movement, which is interesting as a term. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, it, well, that, that's because, again, it was like, it's, 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 the, it's the Soviets that got in the way here. It was Eisenstein and fellas, people like, they got access to those films were like, well, you can do this. We should, we should change. So the idea was that very simplistically filmed stuff because they were not interested in the grammar or syntax of what like a camera could do. They were not interested in that. They were interested in capturing performance so it could be translated beyond where it's performed. Um, so there'll be like very simplistic visuals and there'll be uh, a narrator called a benchy who would often be improvising or reading out very elaborated stories over the top of the film and the film would much like backdrop as like to the theatrical piece that was you turn up for like some oral storytelling and then with the the rise of like Eisenstein and contemporaries they saw what you could do with editing and that like editing could be its own language because they saw language being the language and that led to the pure film movement and there are people in the films at the time who thought that was killing out a unique art form and homogenizing it they're like well why can't it be different why can't we have our own thing why do we have to bow to these pressures that say film has to be a certain way so there's like just competing histories of what could have been and what was is, is, is great. And you can go back even further and again and look at the very earliest films versus what they kind of became like, you know, there mm. there there's nothing that uh, was saying for certain that film had to be an inherently narrative medium to no. to begin with. All of the earliest films, you know, they were all very short snippets of like, you know, just basic, you know, candid uh, documentary footage effect. A lot of animal movements, which is really interesting because there's like that sense of I can Google a capybara, but like there's really, really early footage of a capybara walking. That's, that's, you would not have seen that. You'd have heard about that. You're like, wow, there's like some really great early footage of like birds in a nest, which I watched. I should find that somewhere. And why that was amazing is because cameras could finally get closer to things that if you were a human, if you got that close, the bird would go away. So it's like, you can now see this thing. So as like an, an access tool, as like a geographical kind of like, I don't know, like anthropological, like sociological tool, film played that function for a while as well. Mm-hmm. And it was only once it became, uh, when 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 fictional uh, narratives became like a very o- obvious commercial avenue that mm. that started to become uh-huh. the primary form, you know, in in you know, let's say like the very, very early 1900s, turn of the century there. Again, all very, you know, kind of mixed match where, where things start and stop there. You know, so a specific date is not always, uh, you know, easily decidable in that case. Yeah. So we've talked around it. Um, so for you as as a silent film enthusiast, a silent cinema enthusiast, what is so special for you about silent film to add to what you've already alluded to? I mean, obviously, I'm I'm very interested in like the kind of history of it, but more so yeah. than anything, I think what's captured me about it is the the kind of singularity of it in terms of 
its its presentation and how it mm. is a, a very metaphorical uh, uh, often uh, art form above uh, anything else. Uh, and also uh, the the innovative side of it. It, it, despite it being around for you know thirty almost forty years, it never really stopped being innovative. It was always inventing, you know, and always something. And, and, and what I've written here for myself is I said, silent movies are so fascinating because they are the cutting edge of cinema, and I think that's true still today. Again, despite being a hundred years old. Yeah, I, again, I think that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of like when a medium is establishing itself, it's often so much more experimental because it have rules to fall back on. It's that sense of we are crafting out the edges of what cinema can be, and that's so much more exciting. Well, even when it became, you know, very kind of like like homogenized and you know factory oriented, yeah. you know, once you get to the 1920s and the the Hollywood system kind of really has has taken over, you know, and, mm. and, and the medium is firmly entrenched in what it's going to be from there on. It's still a wildly inventive, you know, format. It's still, you know, incredibly artistically forward, you know, and, uh, you know, visually they're they're doing things that are, you know, so entirely unique, even I think to films today. You know, the, the limitations yeah. of, of the format, I don't think are, are holding them back by any means all the way up until the end of the silent era. I guess because you have to like push into a poetics and you you have less shorthand right. um, to get around things. Um, you have to express yourself in really novel ways. Um, yeah. So what? As as a lover of silent film, what what are the ones? To, if I had to track you down to a few, right. What are for you your your silent film experiences or the ones that you you see as like the cortex that motivate this this desire for you? I guess this is also a good place to talk about our our personal histories of of silent film, like. How did we get into it? Yeah, yeah, it's a better way, a better way of framing it. And I actually have a very specific point. I can tell you the exact, the first silent film I ever saw. And it is probably the most conventional one. Can, can I, can I get, is it Chaplin? It's Chaplin, right? It, it is, yes, it's 100% yes, Chaplin. Yes, good, same, yes, yeah. very good. It was, and, and, and again, that's how, you know, this is fed to you. It was, it was during a time where I was still going through like lists of the greatest films of all time and yeah. watching them and one that kept coming up was the gold rush i was gonna guess that one precisely yeah and it's such a perfect choice still i would still use that film to introduce anyone i think to to, to silent film who's not into yeah, it yeah i think silent comedy is is the gateway it's what i said earlier that i think people that are new to cinema i think have no issue with silent films sometimes because silent comedy is so accessible because it's just funny um and because the, the humor comes from the physicality and leans into the physicality in the same way that slapstick sequences in sound film are funny. Yep. And you have to be such an, um, an immensely talented physical performer because you have to sell the humor through your body so well that like, yeah, silent film at silent, like comedic film is so instantly accessible. And so just like infectiously joyous. And it's not as easily dismissible as older, mm. you know, as other, uh, comedy i would say you know there's a lot of uh, you know it's, yeah. it's very easy and it, to to write off certain comedy as being very passe or very specific to its time time and place or just straight up you know not not artistic you know there's a lot of people who are you know just don't uh want to acknowledge the artistry of comedy but that is not as easy to do when it comes to names like mm. keaton and lloyd and and chaplin in in particular you know because there is a a craft to their humor a very visual recognizable craft that is so impressive that it, it can't be denied and again like the mm -hmm. like the gold rush is a very easy example you know in terms of a, a great one to go to because you can talk about the the great model work just in the big finale you know and how the, uh, how much of an achievement that is and the pacing of of that but i guess to be more specific about it is uh in terms of my history with it is that i I bought a DVD of The Gold Rush because it wasn't available anywhere that uh, yeah, I was yeah, streaming yeah. at the time, you know, uh, that I was watching things. So it was like it was like a six dollar DVD and I bought it and it sat on my shelf for a while just because I was like, uh, I, I know I need to get to this. But like it felt like a mm. big step to me, like it's a silent movie. I don't know. You know, what, am I, I going to be able to sit through this? <laughs> what if I can't pay attention? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it, it ended up being so easy, you know, and, and so natural. And it, it felt like such a revelation at that time for, for me to see that and to experience. And so then, obviously, from there, the jumping off points were other, you know, Chaplin films, then like like Keaton and such, and eventually moving into some of the, the, the bigger name ones, you know, eventually you get to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Metropolis, and <sighs> you get to, you know, the other big... Uh, 
um, you know, German Expressionist films. Uh, you can get into the, the, the Soviet films very easily, the Eisensteins, you know, works and such. And th- from there, I think the world just really opens up and you and you, you really start to look at it, at, you know, a more vast history once you get into the more dramatic side and away from the comedies. Yeah, I, I mean... My history is not as specific because I, I am here as very much more the knows enough to be dangerous but still doesn't know <laughs> enough, um, is, 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 which is always a lovely place to be in. Um, my, my history of silent film is quite sporadic because it's never been something that I've just like delved into purely by itself. Um, but I mean, my, the first thing I can remember is being introduced to Chaplin, not interestingly, not purely through. So the first Chaplin I watched was The Great Dictator. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went back from there because my... Do you remember back in the day when you get, like, these, like, newsagents-only magazines that would, like, be a magazine that would come with, like, a DVD or, like, a disc, and then you'd, like, get the collection? Like, my dad got one because it was, like, the beginning of this, like, Chaplin collection. It's like, over the next three weeks, you can build up your collection of Charlie Chaplin on DVD. <laughs> little things. And the first one was a great dictator. We watched that, and then that led to, to, to a couple more. Um, so that was the way there. And then I think it, it jumps forward a bit to me borrowing a, a DVD of Metropolis, um, because I thought it looked cool as hell and I knew it was important and absolutely loving that. And then as I delved into film more widely, always been the need to delve back. And I mean, also because as I delved into filmmakers that I loved from the 40s and 50s of like learning that a lot of their earlier work was in silent film. So I've watched all of Ozu's um, surviving silent film. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting because it, it was such an interesting like contextualization of being like, ah, oh, here's like, in some places, a different kind of Ozu. Like, so The Night's White, um, the Knight's Wife is such a different kind of Ozu film. Especially with Ozu, who we have such a very distinct and definite idea in terms of a filmmaking yeah. style. Families talking about things in beautifully framed shots. Yeah. And that seems very, even if it's quiet, that is very talky. Mm-hmm. And and also the, spe- the very specific compositions. Um, you know, yes. And when you go back to his silent work... It's it's still there, all the themes and ideas and the you know the uh, uh, compositions to come, but it's definitely not as refined as no, you know, totally perfect, not. pure as, as what will come to really associate with Ozu. But it's nice to see that that approach build its way out exactly, of the yeah. supposed limitations of silent film, and then applying those limitations to the supposed increased scope of talking film of when there is still those things that and then i guess my 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 next silent film journey is i got really interested in i mean just youtube is such a powerful resource i just got so interested in just what were the first things that people were throwing cameras at Mm -hmm. um and I just, I just every now and then just go for a little binge of just watching these like early results. So I've been working my way sprightly through like Alice Gobelchet's work because it's so just great that it's just all there. Um, I discovered the Melies stuff. I remember watching a trip to the moon really, really young because I'd seen it in something and been like, this is just so yeah. awesome. Uh, yeah, that stuff. I just have this insatiable desire for. I think that's the other big flashpoint for a lot of people in terms of understanding yeah. and appreciating science cinema is uh melies for for sure 100 yeah. uh, percent uh and again like chaplin the image of the moon uh with the the mm. rocket in its eye is so iconic and so prevalent throughout media you you kind of want to chase that that's that's where a lot of i think my a lot of my early film interests were were wa- seeing like points of reference in other films yeah. and other shows and media and stuff and being like what's that from and wanting to know you know and and kind of chasing that line back to its origin and Melies, i think is really one of the early points of like uh creative bastion yes uh, in in, in a, cinema yeah, a, a, a complete genius and and a very easy way to to go to 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 seek out you know, and, and see where... Oh, yeah, you can watch minute-long Melies things that will just yep. blow your mind. You're yeah. just like, whoa. <laughs> like that, the, 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 the disappearing head one, I can't remember what it is, but just like just like watching people just get decapitated through editing tricks. It's just, there is like a, a light but dark humour to so much of the stuff that is so... I, don't, I, I love the trickery of it. I just love the... Oh, yeah. The, we are just having fun with the form, use, using form as an expression, which you just don't get anymore. Or you get it only in experimental film, uh, which actually what you were saying earlier really, really struck me of, I feel like what I'm seeing now in experimental film um, and what I crave now experimental film I was seeing so much more commonplace in just having to be creative with the physical tools in front of you as opposed to mm-hmm. we can do this so many other ways I, I think also going back to another example you stated um, M- Metropolis I, I mentioned but I, I really want to emphasize the big point for me for getting into it because uh, it was also yeah. it's also a big inspiration for the podcast here in particular 
as a, a film that impressed upon me how our perception of, of cinema can yeah. alter in, over time with the reintroduction of things that we thought no longer existed. Metropolis was like the kind of primary example for me of a film that was so iconic and so impactful in an incomplete form for so much of its lifetime. Yes. And and when I when I learned about that, when I learned about the story of the discovery of the like 40 some odd minutes of a, a you know previously lost film from Metropolis, you know, in a vault in Argentina, I I was blown away and amazed and you know then going back and watching other versions that existed for uh metropolis you know and, and comparing the two in my mind and seeing just how yeah. radically different they were but also being able to appreciate how those you know partial versions still shaped and influenced cinema for so long for become so iconic still you know despite you know being uh only a piece of what it was it, it you know made me really recontextualize and consider what, you know, cinema was and could be and how it's been different over the years and, and really I, I think inspired this show yes. especially as far as a yeah. a, a, a a necessary uh rewriting of, of a history, a re recording of what was once lost and needing to be put back into it. Because that's ultimately I think one of the, the more interesting things from a historical perspective is that the, even though we don't have access to so much of it, you know, 75 to 90% of all silent films are lost. That didn't take away from their impact at the time. They were still heavily influential works that we can, like, figure out based on contextual details in other films. Uh, and so to piece together that history is yeah. as crucial as to preserve it, you know, I think in, in the literal form. To save tantalising future conversations, because this is going to come up time and time again in a beautiful way, I think we should tie this off with, with our, our key questions about what is lost and how does become lost. So, first of all, David, our foundational definition then, what is a lost film? Well, I think it is easier by starting by asking what is not a lost film. Just kind of getting <laughs> out some of the, the easy go-tos that a lot of people might think. And it, and it should be stated that this definition of lost film is primary for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, gotcha. Under other definitions, lost film certainly could apply to uh, other films and, you know, uh, additional ones that would fit under these, uh, I'm about to say, are not lost films. But for our sake, the examples I'm going to give are, are going to uh, highlight how the, the specific kinds of lost films that we are looking to cover here. So what is not a lost film? Uh, well, not, one is a film which is extant, but largely unavailable for viewing. So, you okay. know, films that don't have no home media release, uh, something like Ken Russell's The Devils or Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid. You know, these are films that uh, exist, you know, they're they're around, you know, and uh, can be seen, just not easily or accessibly. And they've never been made yeah. legally available, you know. So that is not a lost film. Gotcha. Uh, another film that is not considered a lost film kind would be uh films that were completed but never officially released you know they're they're kept, uh -huh. kept locked up in a vault somewhere we're not allowed to see them uh something in, infamous like jerry lewis's the day the clown cried uh more yeah. recently there's the uh write-off of batgirl although it might yes. it might be lost uh you know <laughs> if, if we can ever confirm that or, or not but as far as i'm aware it it still exists it's on a hard drive it's just not being allowed to and, be and then we'd argue then if it was to go away from that hard drive it would be lost by definition because it never was extant released to begin with so this must be films that were shown the light of day yeah so so that's that, that that's our next definition here a, not, an, okay. a film that is not lost uh, a lost film was a film that was never completed but has been made available in some form or another uh, so like a lot of Orson Welles films are kind of in this state yeah. you know uh, he had like an incomplete some Renoir as well yeah, Incomplete Don Quixote. Uh, Eisenstein did a film called uh, Que Viva Mexico, which was later finished um, but and, and released and you know, made available to see. But it's like, it's not this, you know, not it's not lost. You know, it's not something we're covering here. Uh, and something like, you know, Jodorowsky's Dune, um, you know, which wasn't even something that was filmed, but someone might consider, like, 
lost, you know, yeah. never finished, you know, some something yeah. of interest. You know, a loss for sure, but you know. Th- these are all films that are of interest and we're discussing, but not in this particular form, you know, for this podcast here. A lost film for us is a movie that was completed and released, but is now unlocatable. There's no knowledge of it it's being preserved. Or Nobody... was, so for us, because we're focusing on the found, so was for a period unlocatable. Therefore, it exactly. will forever have the status of it was lost. Yeah, so so films that have been since been located in some form or another. So uh, how does a film become lost? Uh, uh, lo- lots of ways, but let's start with the one of the easier ones to point to. So until the early 1950s, when they invented safety stock or acetate film, it was all made on uh, nitrocelluloid space, which is very, very, very flammable to a point that yes. its its initial usage was as a substitute for gunpowder. <laughs> um, so the, the preservation of films, essentially for, you know, more than 50 years worth of uh, films is, is very volatile, very difficult. It takes a lot of effort to preserve these films. You know, they have to be kept at a certain temperature and safe areas, you know, and constantly, you know, kind of uh, checked on, gone through, you know, r- real uh, re-roll uh, roll and such on reels. And uh, it, there was not always a lot of interest in doing that. Uh, and even when there was often accidents happen and you know big fires would spontaneously occur and that's how a lot of films end up getting getting lost you know from in private collections on small scales to like gigantic vault fires that destroy decades worth of otherwise preserved materials but that's not the primary reason that so many of uh films are are lost you know that's that's kind of the more common uh, perception but in reality, the vast majority of early films and silent films, uh, they were intentionally destroyed. They were, you know, yeah. uh, that they, they were dismantled by studios uh, who perceived their value, social artifacts, as to be less than the resale value of the silver that was in a lot of films. They would they would scrap ah, them for okay. silver contents <laughs> and sell them, or they would oftentimes, you know, just instead of having theaters ship them back. Because, the, you know, a lot of how films traveled, they would travel around different theaters, they would ship movies along, and then when it got to the end of the line, you know, you could either ship them back to the studios, or if they thought that wasn't worth it, they would just tell them to scrap it. They would tell them to destroy the movies. <laughs> destroy it, you know, throw it in the ocean, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it was intentionally destroyed so that they couldn't be continue to be profited. There, again, there's just too yeah. much effort for the studios to preserve them. And they didn't see the value in the resale of them, especially early on when films would play for no more than a week if it was a couple of reels and maybe only a day if it was like a one reel film. Uh, And then there was no interest in seeing it again, you know, for for many people. Similarly, the entire foundational catalogs of other nations' histories uh, have just been irrevocably lost thanks to uh, external destruction, you know. Yeah, of course. War in particular. I... I remember reading ages ago the so it's not a silent film, but I think like a a copy of like the Lady Eve, I think it was, was found in now Russia because a lot of during the Second World War um, films and in the, in the aftermath of the Second World War films were um, smuggled out of occupied France um, because of the Nazi and Vichy France like attempts to destroy cultural artifacts. So there was like a pipeline of we actually because you know just obviously a contentious issue to get in, but like there's a different approach to 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 co- culture in, in the Soviet system of that wants to get it out from one into the other. And then I think quite a lot of films have been found that way in like like Eastern Eastern countries, like Eastern European countries, and as far east as as, as Russia of this had to be taken away somewhere, and that's the reason we have it. Still. Oh yeah, yeah, and and again, war is a big one here in terms of uh, a lot of destroyed, you know, films, a lot of lost ones. Um, obviously, in the early 20th century, there were a couple major worldwide wars that um, you know led to a lot of uh, destruction. And you know, when your your country is being bombed and bombarded yeah. by um, force, you know, uh, outside forces, one of the last priorities is you know. Mm. The, the very destructible materials that are being held in a warehouse. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, there's a little bit more on your plate in terms of what's important yeah. to evacuate and, and save. So that happened. But, uh, 
yeah, and, and there's certainly lots of cases with the, the Nazis, especially. that I think that's a topic we'll get into with a lot of later uh, German films in, in particular mm-hmm. and others uh, that were lost or intentionally destroyed, you know, the, the cultural erasure. Some of it was, you know, not necessarily intentional. Some of it's just, you know, the places where the films were being kept were in the areas yeah. that were being bombed and thus they were destroyed as a part. And some of, you know, the countries that suffered most from this were... Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, Eastern ones in particular, much of Japan's early film history and almost the entirety of Korea's silent film history are gone. Mm. Like, I I think the oldest surviving Korean silent film is from 1928, if I remember right. Wow. And yeah, it's, and and there's only like maybe two. Uh, Likewise, Japan just has uh, a very small record of surviving. Yeah. Uh, silent films you know some of it was preserved most of it was preserved from personal collections some of them on the filmmakers themselves yeah it's it's, it's a degree of foresight that i guess like you some people just like wouldn't even think to have at that point because of just like historical moments and because of like wider like external factors and because of lack of knowledge around like preservation that we've like accrued over time and what it means to preserve things and our like growing awareness of ephemerality of all like physical things mm-hmm. and us just being helped by the digital but not helped to an extent by the digital because the digital also has myriad issues well on film in particular like again as, as we kind of went over the the value of it as an artistic yeah. ar- artifact was not really perceived until mm, it, the movement didn't really start until the 40s and then didn't really okay. really take off and i'd say until the 50s like people started preserving films as, as late as like yeah. the 30s but, um, you know, it, it it kind of grew more and more in the decades. And then by the late 50s, you have actual academic works being committed to the preservation and the recording of film history, uh, at least as far as English speaking goes. It's a lot harder to, for us anyway to keep track of in other um, countries yeah. in, in what their uh, uh, approach to preservation has been, which is another factor in the, the, the bent and the survivability of silent film here yeah and a lot of it has to do again like when the the majority of silent films that survive are french and german and english and american films which is very much shaped like the modern slate of film yeah and the canonical view of film um because you know uh, uh, like a country's film history also contextualizes our interest in its film present because it seems like there's more of a lineage of film there and you're right like there are certain countries that we don't see as having like film industries and a lot of that comes from the loss of of film industries we don't see them having like a yeah a a history of film and when actually film is taken away destroyed lost etc then they rob that ability to establish themselves as like a global film nation which has has very much like drawn out the current slate of film and and there's a again there's a reason why this western bias yeah. exists you know there's a lot of mechanisms in place and that survivability is a big yes. factor of it there there was something i said in an email on another podcast of of yours that yes. i i want to reiterate here and and refine even and it's a it's a little uh, equation i've kind of dreamed up as far as what what equates to the films we discuss today and what we perceive as important and that is uh the dissemination is equivalent to the preservation and canonization of what happens there. What we value in terms of film can only Mm. be measured by what exists. And what exists still is heavily, heavily determined by how much it was spread, how much of it was put out, how much of it exists, not just in terms of the volume of the output, which is a very big factor in terms of, you know, what was allowed to survive, but also how far it was able to reach, yes. how long it was put out. Of course. So as we'll find as we go through the films that have survived and endured, so many of these films are often found in, not not locally, but in, uh, in, a, in a global area, in, in other archives, in Spanish mm. archives. And uh, very famously, many, <laughs> many Western films have been found in the archives of Czechoslovakia, uh, you know, uh, at the time there. Yeah, the, um, the now Czech Republic. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, we, we mentioned uh, Metropolis being found in Argentina and films are found in, you know, Brazil. Oh, and there was that, that horrible loss in, in Brazil a year ago, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. of their, their film archive, again, a fire in there. 
um, which led to a, like a, a big like chunk of extant film and therefore film history yep. um, being lost. And yeah, and, and then again, it affects things on a global scale. So even though we we talk about silent film as being more global and interconnected, you know, mm. there there was so much that was not at the same time. Again, another big reason why a lot of films from Japan and India, you know, in particular, don't survive is because they never really made it outside of their borders. You know, they were very... Mm local appealing you know you know there, there wasn't as, as much of a demand and they made films that catered to their domestic interests i think it's like the benchy point as well this like yeah, exactly. like figure just like strolling around here's my story let's go i mean there's no real like impact of that outside of that i don't know how that could travel mm-hmm. as, as opposed to the wide-reaching influence of german films and french films and you know yeah. american films especially those those three i would say are the big export you know primary uh films uh, cultures of the silent era mm. and why we largely see them as the pioneers as well yes because they're the ones that survive there's the ones that are documented they're the ones that we perpetuate an interest in as well and you know it, it's kind of a self-feeding cycle because what yeah. survives is what we can evaluate and so that's what we continue to put importance on but in this podcast we are going to work to get above that bias as well yeah. attempt to as much as we can no certainly um it's it's it's, it's very the, the canonism we should resist it's very difficult to do so because as we've said of like again the availability of you can only watch what is there or what you have the ability to get to and that has been created mm-hmm. over time and over time so um as we reach the hour mark here i think it's time to save some of the treats for future so can you please inform us david of what we will be sampling next time the people hear our voices so uh, hopefully this will g- have given everyone listening a good foundational point to, to go off of an idea of where we're going to go with the series. Or at least the, where we're coming from as well. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the big point of wanting to establish uh, what we're seeking mm. out here for this, this adventure, this endeavor. But uh, to start, I think we'll also follow it up with a series of films that kind of establish the importance of, of early film, you know, the, the yes. pioneering spirit of so much and foundational, and in particular, our objective in covering what the survival of, you know, certain areas of science film have allowed us to do in terms of rewriting history. And we'll, we will start yeah. that with the, the flagship work of uh, Oscar Michaud. With, yes, uh, with so this, is, this is their earliest, yeah, their earliest surviving film and the earliest surviving feature film from a black filmmaker. Yep. Exactly. Funnily enough, we, we did just very recently, inter- as in like during the foundation of this podcast, uh, find an earlier piece of film from a uh, black production company within another film. But yeah, it, as far as extant, complete feature work, yeah. which is yeah. going to also be the primary focus of the podcast, we will cover some, short, some short works as well. But, yes, but, but ostensibly completed works that exist in as close to the form as we could hope. Yeah, and, and also just... Uh, focusing on features so we have a good length yeah. to discuss here as well but yeah so that that will be our starting point for uh the next week's episode fabulous so thank you so much for listening this week and we will continue to catalogue important histories of these once lost films with a more specific lens as we go forwards but a word to those at home lest you find a silent film in your midst. Don't forget to check your local basement, personal basement, attic, or any strange space around you for some lying silver. You know, you can sell that later, find it, but don't let it burn your house down. And once you have found that thing, feel free to contact us through our networks. You can find us at thetwingeeks.com, where you can find David primarily and myself, and you can find just me and my friend Jack, we'll mention in a second, at The Stacks on Film. Um, You can find that via Patreon, podcast feeds, etc., etc. So report all significant discoveries to those authorities. We'll be back next week with more films rescued from the ashes of history, specifically a film this time, not just more films, a film, and... A huge thank you to Graham for our podcast art, which is fabulous, and to Jack for our wonderful theme tune. And we'll put some credits in the description, I'm sure. Thank you so much for listening.